Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may, and probably will, include a healthy dose of spoilers. This week's episode kicks off my series exploration of what is not only one of my favorite horror franchises of all time, but one that is the bedrock of the genre, that being Evil Dead. And where else to begin than with Sam Raimi's 1981 classic, The Evil Dead, in which Ashley Williams, played by Bruce Campbell, his girlfriend, Linda, and three friends' weekend cabin retreat quickly turns demonic as they discover the Necronomicon, or the Book of the Dead, which releases spirits that attempt to possess and kill the group by dawn. But it isn't just me flapping my gums about this DIY project from hell, as I've once again recruited friend of the show and the host of the killer horror critic podcast, my pal, Matt Kanopka. Matt, what's going on, man? Hey, Jay. Good to be here talking uh, some Evil Dead with you, man. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I think uh, a majority of my guests that I'm having on to chat about this and obviously myself, you know, we've kind of had our uh, love for Evil Dead rekindled with the games release, right? I think that it was so great to see everybody (laughs) online, you know, really come around this game and, you know, foster the community around a game that asynchronous multiplayer and whatnot and seeing people really dive into the movies sometimes, you know, for the first time, which was really, really Mm -hmm. cool to see. Like I have buddies that aren't really gamers. They're not really into horror movies, but I kind of like convince them to get the game and to try it out. So we'd have something to play. And then they're diving into either the movies or they're diving into the series, which is bouncing around different streaming services and whatnot. So it's an exciting yeah. time to be a uh, an Evil Dead fan. Oh, 100%. I, you know, I got to be honest with you, aside from the brief couple days I spent beating the query, uh, I have not stopped playing Evil Dead since it came out. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I hit it up at least once a day. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing that's so great. Like, they not only took like a multiplayer mode that is very popular, obviously, in the horror side of gaming and, you know, competitive multiplayer and whatnot, but they used the IP in a way that feels like it's made by fans of Evil Dead, right? Oh, yeah. That's always the fear is that somebody's going to take a popular IP and then it's not necessarily indicative of elements that, you know, is why we love the film actually being representative in the game itself. Well, and that's what's been really wonderful about it is, you know, like you said, it's it's a really great time in introducing new fans to the franchise you know, because they're playing this game and they get to, you know, walk in the shoes of all these different characters and settings. So, of course, they want to go check it out. And then for fans like us, you know, it it does pay so much attention to detail uh, just in everything that you can do. Like, I love that, you know, you, you can possess the deer head in one of the cabins, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Like, <laughs> um, and, and it's been so fun just kind of getting to play as different characters who all have their own skill sets and you know, we have a variety of different ashes. So it's, you know, even though it has, as some have complained, that kind of redundant sort of gameplay style and that it's the same mission every time, to me that hasn't gotten boring because you have so many different characters that we adore to kind of play with that it ends up kind of being a different experience each time. So Absolutely, yeah. I think that, if anything, it's a game that rewards cooperative play in the best way possible, right? And that's why people like you yep. and I don't get burnt out on that mission structure that, you know, 
so you could call it repetitive, but I feel like it create it capitalizes on the best part of multiplayer gaming um, in the sense that like you're basically not only honing your own skills based on whichever character you're playing, and you know there's a wide depth of customizable options, you know, upgrading your character, really honing your particular play style with facilitating certain class roles and whatnot within a group, but also like you're creating these little anecdotal moments that keep you coming back, especially obviously when you're playing with friends. I mean, getting to, you know, whether it's possessing the deer head or somebody getting you with a really great trap with a Kandarian demon or something like that. I mean, there's... Or somebody driving a car like a complete maniac and fucking up the mission. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And that's why I think it wouldn't be able to thrive as it has if it wasn't indicative of being made by people that, you know, are fans of the franchise through and through. And it's, uh, you know, again, it's really fantastic to see people dive into the game And then, you know, at least from what I've seen, like people diving into either entries in the series that they hadn't seen or, you know, the series itself, which was short lived on TV, but now is getting that, you know, second wind through whatever streaming service it happens upon. Right. And between the game and Evil Dead Rise coming out later this year, you know, it's it's just evil that is a franchise that just will not die. (laughs) (laughs) And hopefully never will. (laughs) But uh, in talking about the film side of things, I mean, what was your first introduction to the Evil Dead series as a whole? Did you were you fortunate enough to dive right into the first film initially or did you stumble upon one of the other ones? No. So my (laughs) my exploration with Evil Dead actually came in a way that I imagine quite a few other people might have, which is that my first experience with it was through Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, because there's that scene where Nancy is watching TV late at night and she's watching the evil dead. And I was a huge nightmare on Elm street fan. So that's actually where I first saw it. And I remember just kind of sitting there and she's watching this scene where you've got like, you know, all the screaming and the sounds of the chainsaw and that like quick close up on Ash. That's all, you know, tilted Dutch angle or whatever. And I remember just thinking like that movie looks fucking terrifying and I have to know what it is, you know? <laughs> And, uh, and so I couldn't actually tell you, um, the first time I watched Evil Dead itself, I just know that Evil Dead 2 was actually the first one that I encountered. Yeah, me too. So, (laughs) so maybe, maybe that's why that one became my favorite as a bit of a nostalgic factor, right? Uh, but I just remember seeing Evil Dead 2 and then going back to Evil Dead finally and thinking like, what the hell is the connection between these (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like what a what a bizarre sequel that it's just a sort of remake of the original <laughs> um which which there is reason for that but um yeah no that was where i pretty much first discovered it and i've just been a huge fan ever since you know i i love the original trilogy uh when the show came around it was one of the most it sounds dorky to say but like one of the most exciting moments of my life because because you know it's like holy shit we're actually gonna get a stars produced you know like big budget r-rated evil dead show and it just completely delivered on everything i wanted so absolutely yeah you know whether we're talking the core trilogy the series or even the you know the the remake i think that evil dead is something that there's so much connectivity between them in a way but at the same time you could dive into almost any of them and still enjoy them without having seen the previous one because Almost nobody that I've talked to or just, you know, friends of mine that are into horror 
started at the very beginning, right? I have friends that were like you and I, that Evil Dead 2 was our first like introduction of sitting down and watching that from start to finish. And then I have buddies that, you know, are into more modern horror. So they saw the remake and then, you know, friends that had started with Army of Darkness. And it's very rare, I find that in like a series, specifically a horror series, where the films are connected and yet you don't necessarily feel like you're missing out they really do feel like these films that are able to capitalize on what Evil Dead does best, but be self-contained while obviously, of course, still referencing of prior events and having nods to those films. But, you know, before we were recording, we were talking about how uh, a particular franchise has a tendency to have large chunks of their films feel almost like ostracizing to people that don't keep up with every entry. And yeah. it's the type of thing that with Evil Dead whether you're diving into at the you know the second film or the third film you're still able to enjoy it and appreciate it and understand why these are so beloved by horror fans which i find is rare yeah and i and i think part of the reason for that is that you know Raimi brings such a it's weird he brings there's like a different tone i feel between all three of the films and the show while still kind of maintaining a similar vibe between all of them. Yeah. You know, like at the heart, they're all the same, but in the way they're presented, they're all very different, you know, because uh, the show is the show. We get a lot more depth with everything and, you know, a budget. other <laughs> <laughs> three didn't really have. And then Army of Darkness, you know, it's kind of like this um, sort of goofy horror comedy with, you know, medieval skeleton armies and shit like that. Evil Dead 2 is straight up three stooges slapstick comedy and you know evil dead that we're talking about today it's you know very strictly just a really horrific grindhouse like really make you squirm in your seat kind of horror film you know yeah so which i think is probably why a lot of us maybe didn't see that one initially because you know the the first evil dead uh it was one of the original video nasties that was banned in the uk and i'm not sure that that was you know, that was a factor in why us in the States might not have seen it as kids. Uh, but I have to imagine that that one might have played a little bit less often on TV than something like, you know, Evil Dead 2 or Army of Darkness, which were, for lack of a better word, a bit safer. <laughs> I mean, those two movies are more approachable, I would say, right? Because of the humor, right? And for the reasons that you mentioned. Um, and if anything, you know, I think within the last five, give or take five years, I've had a greater appreciation for the original film. Um, because it, mm-hmm. initially I wasn't a huge fan of it because where I was coming from, like I had started with Evil Dead 2. That was my introduction. Then I went from that to Army of Darkness, obviously, because of the direct uh, continuation there. Um, and then going backwards from those and having the tone of Evil Dead and what it has evolved into now, you know, going from 2 to Army of Darkness to the series, like it's a very defined tone with Ash, right? And he is Ash. He's really not Ashley anymore, right? I think that that is kind of like the the two different sides to that character. There's Ashley in the original, and then there's Ash at moving forwards from that, which is is not a critique by any means, but just an oversimplification maybe of establishing <laughs> the tones of the character in the movies. But it's interesting, like going from those that are slapstick and horror comedies to something that plays it straight was jarring for me initially when I saw it. And I, it was definitely one of my least favorite entries in the series up until, you know, the last five years or so. But in really kind of revisiting it 
being able to, you know, reel in my expectations in the sense of like, okay, this is not the ash that we know. This is more reserved in terms of there's personality there, there's humor there, but that's not the focal point of this. And that was the quality of this movie that I think, you know, watching it now, I think I watched it twice in prep for this. It's the type of thing that I really appreciate just how phenomenal of a film it's able to deliver in spite of not being representative of like where the series ends up going down the line. You make a great point there between Ashley and Ash, because I think that that is kind of a defining factor for why many of us probably, you know, watch the later films and go back to the first and are perhaps initially like a little bit disappointed because, you know, at the time that we were growing up, especially after Army of Darkness, you know, that was the film that really propelled Bruce Campbell and Ash into, you know, in, into the zeitgeist, right? Where we all kind of knew him a little bit. Like we, we knew of the boomstick and, and, you know, like groovy and that kind of stuff. Like we knew that. And so to go from this really confident, you know, deadite blasting <laughs> asshole really in Ash to Ashley, which is, you know, a lot more reserved, kind of like a wimpier version of Ash, right? Uh, Bruce Campbell himself, I don't know if it's a part of his performance or just the fact that uh, it's an early role for him. You know, he himself even feels a little bit uh, maybe less confident, less comfortable, you know? So going back to that first one after you've seen the others, it's kind of like, wait a minute, this is not, this isn't the evil dead I'm familiar with, you know? Right. Like, what is this? But But like you the more I've revisited over time, the more I have come to appreciate it because the more I watch it, the more I'm like, you know, not only is this an extremely innovative uh, horror film, especially considering the budget they were working with, but it is, it is very terrifying, you know, like the parts of it that really work, really work. (laughs) Uh, Like the pencil in the ankle, you know, that thing makes me cringe just thinking about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's the thing too, that, I wasn't necessarily able to appreciate um, initially was just like over, like we were talking about, it has this minuscule budget and the shooting conditions were atrocious and all these things, which well, you know, are the lore behind this movie. But at the end of the day, this is a phenomenal looking movie almost for the yeah. entirety of it. And it does not deserve to look as good as it does a hundred percent. And it is really the type of thing that, you know, plenty of movies and up and comers are described as being, passionate visionaries and all these things but really like even thinking about all of the horror movies that were being released in you know prior to this or just a few years after it this movie from the opening frames has such a distinct look that's unlike anything that was in that period uh generally speaking right i think when you're talking about you have to keep scale in mind right when you don't have Mm -hmm. a budget or anything like that and you're mostly dealing with people that have only made home movies at that point or have not been working as extensively maybe as they would like to be like the idea that this movie looks as good as it does. And I find holds up so incredibly well, like it's, it's staggering essentially. And I had forgotten because it's the one film in the series that I've revisited probably the least. Right. You know, it's for that exact reason. I mean, this is the film or, or this and evil dead Two because evil dead two is similar in the look, but these are the movies that, you know, actually made me want to get into some element of film, whether it was making movies or writing about movies. Uh, And and a big part of that is what you described as the look of it, because there's an energy inherent in Evil Dead that you just did not 
seen a lot of film beforehand. You know, films were a little bit more, I don't want to say stagnant, because I feel like that's an insult to the filmmakers that came before Raimi. Uh, but they 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 were a bit stiller, you know. the The camera didn't quite move the same way uh, in a lot of films that came before this. And Sam Raimi kind of brought this completely unique vision where he's like, "I'm not just going to move the camera. I'm going to run with the camera. The camera <laughs> is going to the camera is going to attack you." You know, it, it is arguably the most aggressive horror film visually at that point in history because of the way the camera just you know, is all over the place, running at the screen, running at the characters, you know. Uh, and to think that they did that just by strapping it to a two by four <laughs> and running with it, you know, it's just, <laughs> uh, it's just amazing. I mean, it, you the opening shot of just gliding over the swamp, you're just like, I've never seen anything like this before, Yeah, you know, automatically. And, <laughs> you know, even for people like you and I, who are obviously very familiar with the entire swath of the Evil Dead franchise, like, that opening of having that, you know, what I dub as being like Raimi vision for the series, right? Of having yes. the spirits um, POV and then, you know, flying over the swamp. Like that's still a very dynamic type of shot that you're not expecting from a movie of that era. But more importantly, like to go. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. Um, but what you had said a moment ago, like about the way in which he maneuvers the camera and things like that, it's evidence of a director that doesn't feel like they're tied to tradition in any way. You know what I mean? Right. Like it doesn't feel as if he is like married to the tradition that so many filmmakers before him did, of course has a love of filmmaking and allows the influence and love of film to, you know, influence his own take on films and things like that. But he feels like a type of director that's like, well, I could do what other people did, but I'm going to experiment and see what ends up being there. And it ends up being something that doesn't look like anything else of that era. Yeah. R Raimi is a prime example of trusting your gut and not what others tell you, you know, or, or not what's, or not the lessons that have come down before, because, you know, not only does he have this vision that's just completely unique and kind of goes against, I think like people maybe aren't kind of familiar with how difficult it really is to shoot on a small budget. Uh, but but I think Raimi and that entire crew, even despite the success of Evil Dead, would tell you they might have wished they'd done it a little bit differently at the time because shooting something that is that, um, that, is that complicated visually on that budget is very difficult, right? Uh, so he, he's a prime example of going against the grain and trusting your vision and also just, you know, kind of ignoring some of the rules that have been set out because rules are meant to be broken. You know, like Evil Dead 2 is one of my favorite examples to this where, you know, if you're a screenwriter, you come up on a, a lot of bullshit like Save the Cat and that whole series, you know, uh, where they talk about like, oh, the, the inciting incident is on page 12 or something <laughs> like that. Well, Evil Dead 2 says fuck that and the inciting incident is like five minutes into the movie, right. you know, <laughs> like five minutes in, it's pure chaos and we're just, we're just off from that point. So... Uh, so no, he he is one of those directors that I think is a great example of just doing what your gut tells you and and go with it. You know that's what film is. Film is meant to be experimental and and you know dreamlike, and it's not supposed to follow a a set of standard rules that just makes it feel like everything else. You know, right? And like if you're a filmmaker, be different. <laughs> and I think that what is so telling about why I enjoy his film so much is that. He's very experimental. He is against the grain, but it never 
comes off as being like abrasive or, you know, what you might describe more modern day filmmakers as is like being edgy, right? It's not so much spitting in the face of tradition or this and that for the sake of doing so. It's like, no, this is a true visionary that's able to capitalize on what I would assume many would describe back in the day as like this deranged Satan in <laughs> Satan film, but people did. They thought it was deranged. Yeah, they thought it was deranged. And I'm sure that some people, you know, they watch that scene that you mentioned where somebody gets stabbed in the ankle with the Ticonderoga number two. Like they would probably be like, this is deranged. Why would I want to watch this? But there right. is this beautiful, again, DIY quality to the film in almost every way, whether it's, you know, the effects or whether it's, you know, the low budget nature of just the set design in these things. But at the end of the day, like it's somebody that's taking what couldn't be a more simplistic idea. And there's so much personality, What you know, obviously part in, to the characters, but more importantly, like there's so much visual storytelling and it's a movie that really every single minute is in, you know, service of something greater, um, which, you know, nowadays maybe we can describe some films as like, well, there's a lot of dead time in that or something like that. But with a film like this, that I believe was also cut down considerably. It was cut down from like it, 117 to 85 or something like that. But yeah. the idea that they cut a significant amount and it doesn't feel like it's missing anything. It feels like it utilizes every single minute on screen. That That's always been part of the brilliance of Raimi is, you know, he's... <laughs> He's also a great example of not overstaying your welcome. You know, like I like I, I am one of those people who firmly believes in, look, a director can give me whatever runtime for their movie they want. It's their vision. I will go see it. I don't look at something and say, oh, it's three hours. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> like, I'm not one of those people. But I do believe in, you know, there's a there's a certain niceness of just kind of getting in and out. And, and, you know, getting it basically directly injected into our veins like Raimi tends to do with these just short and sweet movies like he, you know, he tends to do uh, these little 80 to 90 minute films that, you know, never feel bloated. Like you said, every second is used wisely <laughs> uh, and there is no dead space. He's always just kind of off and running. <laughs> right. Even when you look at especially, you know, with the evil dead, you look at the way that this movie is paced and it's not something I was able to appreciate until, you know, a few more recent rewatches of it. But this is a film that wastes again, talking about utilizing every minute within the first five minutes, you feel like, you know, these characters to a degree more than your standard, um, you know, horror cast, if you will. Right. I think that he does such a good way of putting us in that, the backseat of that car and establishing personalities whether they be loud personalities, whether they be abrasive, whether they be, you know, more reserved and whatnot, but you get a sense that you're a fly on the wall of that car. And I think that the his ability to pair little moments like that with then, of course, going right into them almost getting taken out by a truck that's driving by and then almost getting stuck on the bridge and then they show up at the cabin. He's able to do a lot in such a short amount of time that you know, some horror movies of this genre, thinking about the 80s and, you know, how things were getting churned out so quickly, like some movies would spend the first 35 minutes establishing a setting and characters and the type of threat that they might face. But Raimi does it in the first 10 minutes and then follows that up with not more exposition, but more of just like allowing us to coexist in that space, but never being allowed to forget that something is just outside looking in. Right. <laughs> Which, I mean, is incredible to see on a rewatch. 
Right. And, and yeah, no, he does a good job with the characters in the sense that like, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say that any of them are particularly, you know, memorable in the sense of like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm not in love with a lot of these characters. Like even Ash, even Ash is kind of, you know, reserved through most of it where it's like, I like his character, but it's not, you know, it's not like the Ash we get in Evil Dead 2 and later on. Um, but he does do a really good job, like you said, of just establishing right away who these people are, you know, like Scotty just being a complete dickhead, really. <laughs> uh, and and who is it, Shelly, I think, who's just like, uh, it's probably a dump, you know, talking about the cabin. <laughs> yeah. like, you just really got a good sense of who these people are with just one line, you know. And, and that, like, again, it, all writers need to see Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. To, to get a better understanding of how to write these things because Raimi does it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're not all that remarkable in terms of like being these defining personalities, but they are at least somewhat defined, right? It's not that we have to get three or four instances of Scott being a dickhead right out the gate. Like we're, it's pretty clear right out the bat, this guy's a dickhead. Then you have the girls that are like doubting whether or not this cabin's going to be, like, you know, this magical weekend that I'm sure their boyfriend sold them on. And then you have Ash who you know, is reserved, but I found that I was more impressed with the fact that he's able, that Raimi is able to, you know, present Ash. We get to know his sensibilities. We get to see the opposite of Ashley, which is, you know, Scott, who's being a dickhead. And then you have Ashley standing up for, I believe, uh, Scott's chastising Cheryl early on or Shelly. And immediately Ash sticks up for her. And then you see the way that Scott treats the female characters. And then you see how Ashley does. And like, Again, they're not these maybe career-defining performances, but in the context of The Evil Dead, in such a short period of time, I found it to be, you know, very concise or more concise than you would expect from somebody that has not made a great deal of films up until that point. And that's the thing is they're not remarkable, but they feel natural. Yeah. You know, they, they feel like real people, and that's what's most important, especially, you know, when you're doing this kind of sleazy grindhouse horror film, right, where it's like, the, the most important thing is that you you feel like these are real people so that when the terror hits, you know, it, it's more effective because they they don't feel like actors to you, you know, and, and that was that was arguably a difference that that made it less scary. The the longer the franchise went on is Ash becomes this, you know, bigger <laughs> personality uh, to an extreme that you suddenly feel less terror, which is why I think it was a good choice to lean into the comedy. But but here in the original, you know, they all feel real. So when, you know, so when they start getting possessed or uh, felt up by trees or whatever, you know, you really feel that in your bones because they they don't it, it all feels like it's really happening in a sense. So, yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing that I find to be so endearing about the original film and its place in the overall series in that it is more of a tragedy and it casts Ash when I think about that character and how it's evolved, like his character, I find funnily enough, like becomes more tragic the more that the movie leans into the humor side of things and, you know, two and an army of darkness, just because you mm. start to see, and this is again, why I think I have a newfound appreciation for the original is that the groundwork for the next two films of that character have been laid perfectly. Even if he never truly resembles Ashley again, the groundwork mm. is laid there and you see how he becomes this new character essentially. And, you know, the more that he is viewed as being slapstick and obviously humor focused, when you ha think about that in the context of the original film, 
I view it now more as like a coping mechanism for him, right? Because you get an early inkling of him losing his mind at the end of the Evil Dead. Right. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, my wife and I, we just did an episode on Army of Darkness not too long ago. I enjoyed and, and that, that very much. The, oh, thank you. And, and that was one of the conclusions we came to is, if I remember right, is that, you know, there is a tragedy in Ash and, and exactly what you said, you know, he, by that third film, I feel like we've gotten to this place where Ash is a tragic character who perhaps blames himself for just never being able to save the women in his life. Right. You know, and, and that has turned him into a bit of an asshole <laughs> who does have this kind of like snappy sense of humor because like you said, it's a coping mechanism. You know, it's his way of trying to deal with the fact that he is so abjectly failed right. <laughs> uh, over and over again, you know, because he isn't your typical hero. He's not the he's not the guy who walks in and just, you know, magically saves the day. Like he is a blumbering idiot who, <laughs> you know, genuine generally just happens to kind of fall ass backwards in the saving the day. So, right. <laughs> um so, so yeah, so there, there's a lot to him that I agree. There, it, it is set up very well in this first film. And I think, you know, kind of tying into that, something that I kind of liked uh, coming back to this uh, sometime in the last year or two is, you know, w- with all the discussion on, on like toxic masculinity and that kind of stuff in our culture, uh, I kind of got a new viewpoint on Evil Dead related to Ash where... You know, the film's often been referred to as like misogynistic, especially at the time it came around because of the tree rape scene and, you know, the moments where Ash is like slapping uh, Linda around, I think. And and those are totally valid, you know, especially the tree thing, which I know Raimi and many others have said they kind of wish that they didn't do that. Right. Um, but it was for shock value at the time to get into the theater. And so, you know, they did what they did. But, um, but I kind of like looking at this film, you know, you mentioned that, how Ash and Scotty are so different. And I think part of that difference is that Scotty to me is kind of the like epitome of toxic masculinity. You know, he's this guy who treats all the women around him, like less than, you know, kind of, kind of treats them like kids, talks down to them. Uh, He says things to ask to Ash, like she's your girlfriend. You take care of her, you know, like, um, you don't get the sense that they're really friends at a certain point. Right, exactly. You know, you definitely don't. He said he says things like, I'm going to break your face, you know, to the women. He tells Ash to, like, kill him and slap him and stuff like that. So he he's this guy who's, like, has violent tendencies towards women. And the thing that I always thought was interesting about Evil Dead when you look at it is you have all three women getting possessed first, with Scotty not really getting possessed until the very end. And in that sense, it kind of felt like... And I, and I don't think this is where Remy was coming from, but looking back at it and reading it this way, it kind of feels like, uh, you know, almost like this inner exploration of kind of like battling that sort of, you know, toxic masculinity that's inherent in all of us, where Ash is this person who's kind of, you know, torn between having an influence like Scott and trying to be a better man. <laughs> and he finds himself kind of like in this tug of war where, you know, he he is committing violence against women, but he's trying to also overcome that. So I kind of like applying that, especially as the films go on as like part of the tragedy of him and this guy who just wants to be better, but struggles with that. Yeah. No, I a hundred percent agree. And you know, it's the thing where when he gets to that point that he does slap Linda a couple of times, you see that 
in a moment of crisis, which is, of course, your friends becoming possessed by demons and trying to kill one another, um, you see that he succumbs essentially to the way in which I'm sure Scott and other men in his life, you know, how they treat women or how they respond to something like that, which shows to a certain degree, like that we're all susceptible to it to a certain extent. Exactly. And and I don't think it's a coincidence that, that you know, the, the makeup uh, for the women in the deadite is very, you know, it's very uh, over, overemphasized. Like it's very clownish, you yeah. know, like they really, they really paint it on. And I've always kind of seen that too, as just, you know, sort of being like that kind of misogynistic viewpoint of women, you know, again, not, not Raimi being a misogynist himself, but the film through Ash's eyes of kind of seeing the world that way and, you know, and, and being afraid of women in a sense. <laughs> and, and he's really just trying to like battle that element of himself because the film is so psychological. Once you kind of get away from, you know, the, the idea of deadites and zombies, like a lot of it is about him kind of losing his mind. <laughs> um, so I always just thought it was kind of interesting to kind of like view the film that way and just, you know, this like inner battle with him really. <laughs> yeah. I think that, again, that shows that even with the most simplistic of premises or the most simplistic of character overviews, that it takes a real director and a visionary director at that to impart their own, maybe potentially their own struggles, you know, growing up or, you know, being a male specifically in Raimi's case, or just in general, like being able to impart your viewpoints on others or society into characters in a way that never feels preachy or it never feels as if like, oh, this is my message with the movie, right? I think that, again, right. it's, it's definitely a viewpoint too that you would have to watch the movie a couple of times like we have uh, to really, you know, hone in on those types of things. But I think that, again, it shows the promise of a director that is so young in their career that you can have a conversation about a movie such as The Evil Dead, which, you know, on paper, it's about demons and zombies and all this stuff and gore. But at the same time, like characters that, you know, are not necessarily the most memorable, they're able to be serviceable for something greater than just, you know, fodder, which I think is probably when you talk about 80s horror, generally speaking, people have a tendency to be like, well, yeah, it's like you got to listen to 45 minutes of talking and bickering and then you get to the good stuff, which with The Evil Dead, I find, granted, it's as short as it is. Again, something is always every element of the movie is in service of something, whether or not that's apparent on a first viewing, you know, that speaks more to the fact that like people need to watch movies more than once. That's one of my things I get made fun of it by my buddies, but you know, you can't really fully appreciate a movie until you've seen it at least twice. I think hundred percent, you know, I, I have a, I have a very firm philosophy of like, I, unless I just absolutely hate something that I do not find any worth in revisiting. I, I always like to, you know, revisit something if I didn't like it the first time, but wanted to like it because you you never know what you're going to see in, in these things on another watch, you know, and, and going back to what you said. Yeah. You know, any, <laughs> I mean, not anyone per se, but any idiot can get a camera and some money and go make a horror movie in a cabin in the woods. Right. Mm -hmm. But, but only someone of Remy's caliber can do that and still somehow come out with this, surface level simplistic film that audiences are still talking about 40 years later. Yeah. You know, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned 
uh, movies that you didn't enjoy the first time and purposefully going back to revisit them. Um, I did an episode uh, at this point, it was probably a month or two months ago on uh, Jason Goes to Hell, a movie that I saw for the first time probably five years ago and absolutely hated the first time and have done a complete 180 on it, you know, in the time that's Mm -hmm. elapsed since then. And, you know, just being able to appreciate and I think generally speaking, like, that's the healthiest way to look at movies is that you go into a movie, you know, you don't have to like everything. And I think that's, that's something very easy for people to conflate the idea that, well, you have to find something good in every movie. It's like, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that there are movies that can be lesser than what came before them, but at the same time, like you can find elements of a movie that are, you know, standouts within a series themselves, or just in general, like one facet of that movie that, actually like accomplishes something or could be rewarding for various reasons. Hey, J- Jason goes to hell is honestly one of the best examples of that for horror fans, you know, cause everybody hates that movie because it's not quote unquote uh, a Friday movie. Right. <laughs> uh, but, but once you take that out of it, it's like this movie's a fucking like nonstop splatter fest <laughs> with Jason. I mean, a, you know, full on like demon monster, you know, like it's fucking awesome. <laughs> So, so no, I, I'm one of those two. Hated it the first time, no. have done a complete 180 on it. Well, it's what we were talking about before we recorded, right? The idea that you have to have your expectations in check. And that's, again, you know, that's a lesson for uh, for younger Jay when he went to watch Evil Dead for the first time, where it's like, oh, this isn't like the other two movies that I enjoy so much, so it must not be as good. But once you strip that away, you're able to have that, you know, that inner talk with yourself and be like, calm down. You need to appreciate <laughs> this for what it is. You are going to like this young Jay and you are going <laughs> to like it well. <laughs> if only. Uh, well, I gotta ask, so, so young Jay, you know, was there a certain moment that scared the shit out of him the first time watching this? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I'm trying to think. You know, it was probably, not to, you know, bite what you had said earlier, but it's probably that moment where she, Cheryl stabs, I think it's Shelly, in the ankle with that pencil. Uh, oh. Because, you know, up until that point, it was the type of thing where, my view on horror at that time when I was younger, it was kind of like, okay, I have a general idea of what is the toolkit essentially of killers, right? It's a chainsaw, it's a machete, it's a butcher's knife. But to see like an everyday household item be used or, you know, uh, in terms of me being a kid going to school every day, that being viewed as a weapon was like shocking. And that's kind of like how I viewed a lot of horror movies at that period when I guess in my child mind, it was like, oh, this is sleazy horror because it's common items being used as weapons, which obviously now it's like, okay, everything is a weapon in horror movies. But like as a kid, kind of like breaking that regimented mold of what you're expecting and then to have something like that and it obviously be backed up by the fantastic practical work of, you know, Tom Sullivan and whatnot and selling that to a degree that still makes my skin crawl. I mean, that's just a testament overall again to... The talent that's amassed in, you know, getting people together to make the Evil Dead, but also the ability to do so much with so little. I mean, and it's part of the way Raimi films it too, right? Because it's not, it's not just that we're taking, you know, this this everyday household item that you use all the time. It's that you know we don't just get the stab; <laughs> we get the camera holding on to her, just wriggling it around in there. And that that's the thing that always gets me is when you see it just moving around in the ankle, yep. you know. <laughs> because you got you got to have some force too to get a pencil in there so. it's uh yeah. it's definitely a scene that 
you know, triggers me in more ways than one. It being a an ankle injury, which you know, shout out to Pet Cemetery and just being terrified of having anything happen to my Achilles or ankle. But also, like as a kid, got stabbed with a pencil, and just the idea of it not being a fleeting thing and somebody like digging around in there is just like oh, it's like nails on a chalkboard for me in the worst way. Yeah, I I don't remember what horror film it was that I saw that introduced this into my mind, but the idea that when you cut the Achilles tendon, it like rolls yeah. up into your leg, you know. So ever since I heard that, anything with ankles, I'm just like, nope, nope, not for me. I'm out. I'm checking out. Uh, I'm out. <laughs> but you know, this kind of leads into what I want to talk about next, which is you know the general overall you know scenes that are memorable for you of the film, but really. And truly, the practical effects in the film and whatnot. And just, again, every time I read about, like, the budget of this movie, I was like, no, that has to be wrong. It has to be twice that. because, And it furthermore reinforces just how powerful of a tool practical effects can be in the hands of those that know how to utilize them to the best of their abilities. And, you know, basically making a film seem as if it's two, two and a half, three times bigger of a production than it actually is, despite what, you know the setting might look like or, or the scope of a movie and whatnot. So for you, like outside of the, uh, the Ticonderoga ankle stab, what is, uh, <laughs> what are some of the memorable, you know, not necessarily kills, but uh, bodily harm in the film, if you will, that stand out to you? I mean, I think, you know, you can't talk about evil dead without mentioning the tree scene. I mean, that, <laughs> I think, I think that that is, that that's really a defining moment i think for the film in a lot of ways and for a lot of people because you know that first of all that was something that unless i'm i could be wrong but i don't think anything like that had been put on screen before in quite that way you know i don't think we'd ever seen uh tree rape before so that was you know especially as a kid that was very shocking and you don't really expect something like that uh, and, and, you know, for audiences too, that was definitely shocking. You know, that, that was the moment that, uh, that really made a lot of people consider Raimi and his crew to be just like fucking maniacs. You know, it, it's the kind of thing where like people like the censors in the UK, they look at it and be like, Oh, these people are so sick. You know, they must be like murderers or something. And like, nah, they're just fucking weirdos who like making weird shit, you know? <laughs> um, but, 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 but that, and then, you know, that's the, that's the scene that turns a lot of people off. Like my, uh, my wife, Chris, Evil Dead is her least favorite in the, in the franchise. She loves Army of Darkness mm. and Evil Dead's her least favorite because she cannot stand that tree scene. This is the thing, right? When talking about that scene, like you understand why that's all, for lack of a better phrase, a difficult sell for people to get on board with the movie after that, right? You oh, right. of course understand that and you understand when some people like when you say that to people that are not as inundated with horror or people that are not as big a horror fans and whatnot, like when you say that it's an impressive scene, they're kind of just like, look at you, like, what are you talking about? But like, I hope you understand what I mean when I say going back and revisiting, I was really, really surprised at the overall, I would say tact at which that scene is handled with because, and, and, you know, and weird thing to put to it, but you're right. I agree with you. Yeah. You know, it's the type of thing where when you say that out loud, you're like, yeah, she gets, you know, raped by a tree. It's like, well, anything you say after that is going, that could be in praise is ludicrous. But for people that understand, <laughs> like it is a movie, this is fake. Of course. It's the idea though, that like there's a tactfulness I found that Raimi filmed it in that 
it is incredibly disturbing. It's incredibly upsetting. There's no denying that. Yeah. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily feel gratuitous in a way yes. that you would expect from something that is described as like grindhouse and sleazy. And that's exactly the thing is, you know, look, this speaks to Raimi's effectiveness as a director, because like the best horror filmmakers, you know, he can put something on screen that allows the audience to envision something that's much worse. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, uh, like Hooper and Texas Chainsaw Massacre are a great example of that, where people thought that was the goriest film they'd ever seen. There's really a drop of blood in it, you know? And, and I think it's a similar case here where, you know, the very idea of a tree doing this to a woman is obviously extremely uncomfortable and upsetting. But when you actually look at the way that Raimi filmed it, you know, I agree, like, there is a tactfulness to it. It could have, in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, it could be much sleazier, much more grotesque, much more offensive. And the way that he does it, you know, I feel like he shows you just enough uh, to instill the terror and the discomfort, but doesn't go so far that as long as you, you know, as long as you're the type of person like us who can just appreciate horror films for what they are, I don't think it goes so far that you're like, that's it, this movie's unwatchable, you know? Right. And, and, and even and just the effects work themselves are impressive, you know, just, uh, just the way that they get all those vines and everything to move. Like it's, you know, it's creepy. Yeah. It, it's it, technically it is, it's still, I still think that's technically one of the most impressive uses of not only, you know, capturing the, the scene and everything, but just the fact that they're able to make it look as realistic as it does. Um, and you know, it's the type of thing where the tactfulness there is why I typically bounce off of, and not to say that this is part of that genre, but like I don't watch um, a lot of like rape revenge movies, right? Like I spit on your grave, that type of stuff. I just tap out on the one that I will say that I think, you know, I wouldn't say it's my favorite of the genre, but it's a film that I really, really like is revenge. Right. And that is a film that handles the, you know, the rape side of the rape revenge in a way that it informs you, about why the character is going down this path that they're going on, but it's not done to a gratuitous nature to the degree that you almost forget about it to a certain extent in the movie, because it's done so in a way that it doesn't feel exploitive. And that's overall the element of what I think when you're talking about the evil dead, it's what, and you know, again, this is like a male perspective on it. Like that's why I don't get caught up on it. That scene in the evil dead, because it's done so in a way that it's serviceable for what they're trying to, you know, get across the audience. And then they don't linger on it. It's not done in an exploitative manner. And then it moves on to the rest of the film in a way that, you know, obviously it makes Cheryl's entire second arc, if you will, that much more upsetting because you realize what she's doing. And, you know, I would say with a modern lens, the idea that people around you won't listen to you when you're talking about, specifically when a female is talking about the idea of like, she had a traumatic event, nobody will listen. Of course, she doesn't mention what the tree did to her friends, but you see the way in which the rest, and you know, now friends might be in air quotes, because like, again, there's not a great (laughs) uh, amount of evidence that these people really like each other outside of Ashley and Linda. But, you know, overall, like in a group, essentially telling a woman that she is overreacting to something that has clearly been traumatic 
Like that's an aspect of the film that if anything, I think is probably more disturbing almost than the tree moment itself. Yeah. And it ties right back into the, you know, toxicity I was kind of talking about. Like it's, it's the epitome of the women are not believed in horror movies trope. Right. Like she, like she has, you know, it's not that she just saw some creepy dude in the woods or heard a strange noise. Like she was literally attacked by a fucking tree and, and has the scars and everything to maybe not prove it, but show that something has happened. And still they're all just kind of shrugging it off. Like, yeah, whatever you woman, you know, right. like it's, it, it definitely, um, no, I agree. That is the scary part of it. Uh, you know, especially from a female perspective of like, there are so many women, there's so many women that go through that, you know, that, that do have horrible things happen and then just no one listens, which is atrocious in my opinion. But, um, but also, you know, you would ask about effects moments in the film and another one I want to mention is the end uh, because this kind of ties into like the whole idea of learning to revisit something and appreciate it for what it is the second time around. So the first time I saw Evil Dead, uh, I really loved most of the ending, except for when the demonic hands come out of the backs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the reason is because like the effects work is great. You know, it all looks fantastic. But as a kid, I had seen that and was like, what the hell? I want to see the whole demon, you know? <laughs> right. And I was all upset that we don't get a full-on demon coming out of there. And I wanted some kind of bigger ending, so to speak, right? And it's only been on revisiting that I can fully appreciate that because now, you know, I'm not, I'm not some dumbass kid who, like, has to see a monster to be impressed. You know, now I can look at it and go, that's just a really cool effect. Yeah. You know, these big, giant demon puppet hands coming out. <laughs> And this, and what I love here too is that, you know, I gotta be honest, I, I miss films that fully utilize all the effects tools at their hands. You know, like with, with digital now, I just feel like there's so much that just kind of gives us this sort of like fix it in post mentality right. yeah. that, <laughs> that, I, that I really just miss when it, we used to utilize everything, you know, and Evil Dead does this where we've got you know, the practical effects uh, with the deadites we, and we've got, you know, kind of like puppetry and stuff with the hands going on. And then you have stop motion with, you know, the, the bodies just completely disintegrating. And some modern audiences might look at that and say, oh, you know, it doesn't look real. It looks cheap. And to me, it's like, I think it's great that it doesn't look real. I, I love that it looks weird and kind of bizarre and otherworldly, like it doesn't fit into our reality. Because that just works so well for Evil Dead, you know? Like, I, I don't want it to look real. I want it to look fucking strange. <laughs> you know? So, Yeah, with um, something that I haven't been able to appreciate until, you know, I've been running through, of course, the entire series, getting to watch it with, you know, I don't know about a ma- more mature lens, but a more, uh, you know, realizing what about each film, achieve, like what each film achieves in a way that maybe the one that came before it didn't necessarily do, but not to say that like the one that came before it wasn't as successful, like, right. They're all successful in different ways uh, and in different facets, but, you know, speaking specifically about the evil dead and especially the remake, like the, both of those movies playing it straight and really, you know, stripped of a majority of the comedy elements that are in two and army. And of course the series, 
like the body horror elements are so much more pronounced for me in a way that they hadn't been until this most recent series review, just because it gives me more, you know, context overall with the series, start to think about it in a little bit of a different way. But, you know, specifically with the evil dead, the body horror element is so much is like more profoundly disturbing in a way that I don't view it obviously as evil dead two and army of darkness. Cause those are typically undercut by the humor, right? Not that not undercut in the sense that like it's a disservice, but it's just, it, I don't associate it with it because of the intention of those movies, but especially in the evil dead. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, and it's why it makes Ashley so much more tragic is that each thing that happens is happening to somebody that he ostensibly cares about, right? And has somewhat of a relationship with, even if, you know, we've said they don't seem like they're the best of friends. In Ashley's world, they are friends. And I think that it really does sell, especially like the bodies decomposing at the end, right? It And, you know, that scene I love because it lingers on that moment for far longer than you would think it does. And if anything, the longer it goes on, it gets worse, which I don't view as being it being like lingering as being exploitative because it evolves, right? The terror evolves in a way that is incredibly rewarding because then all of a sudden you figure the bodies are just going to like, everything's been decomposed, so it's just going to drop essentially and all that's going to be left are clothes. But oh no, there's hands, there's maybe legs, there's lots of stuff exploding from those bodies in a way that you realize with the way that Ashley is reacting, these are people he loves and cares about to a certain extent. And, you know, of course, that's missing from the, that connectivity is missing from the next two films. But if anything, it strengthens why the original film is such a strong piece and why that cast, you know, they might not be the most memorable, but they are an ensemble in service of something. So, so you know what I just thought of that's even more upsetting? Uh, and I, I never thought of this before, but the, the decomposition got me thinking, you know, th- this is a film that is... Of, of the entire franchise, this is the one where Ash really is losing, you know, people that are close to him. And and we had mentioned how there was a longer two-hour cut originally. It, what A lot of what was cut out of that was the sort of, like, friendship development from what I understand. Uh, so I guess that's kind of a thing that's maybe missing from uh, what we actually got. But But there is something that's even more tragic and disturbing now that I think about it, which is that you know, Ash isn't just kind of losing his friends throughout the film. That that final scene is really just like a microcosm, I think, of the feeling of losing someone to death, right? Because, you know, by having these bodies that are actually decomposing in front of him, you know, it's almost like having a front row seat to you know, watching a loved one just decay in the grave. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and, and then to have the, and then to have the body finish decomposing and then the hands come up, you know, it's this added extra element of the idea that, well, now his friend's souls, their very souls have like been grabbed and taken to hell, you yeah. know? Uh, so yeah, the, now that I think about it, like that's, it's even more upsetting than I ever actually realized is just how in, in a few moments he's witnessing basically a, a lifetime of grief, I guess if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, if anything, I think it further, again, sells the evil dead as being the blueprint for where he goes. And if anything, you know, 
I would never not describe the next two films as being more slapsticky, being more comedy focused. But again, it comes back to what I said earlier about me having a new lens to view at his character, Ash, as being more tragic than anything. And, you know, that's, of course, explored in the series and whatnot. But I would say, if anything, that show, and as much as I enjoy the show, it leans more and more into the comedy side of things and doesn't focus on those elements as much from what I've, I think I've seen two and a half seasons. I don't know if I ever finished it, but generally speaking, right. It's the type of thing. Yeah. I'm again, my uh, back catalog is ever growing, but it's the type of thing that it makes me really just appreciate how, no matter how the tone has evolved over the years and, you know, decades at this point, the blueprint for the entire franchise is right there. And, you know, some people have described the sequel as being, well, Sam Raimi just remade the original movie with a bigger budget, with bigger production value and whatnot. And I don't agree with that description of it because overall it's the original film does things that the sequel could never do. But at the same time, you can find that connectivity tissue that I was talking about in a way that, it feels like a completely natural, I wouldn't say leap, but evolution to that character. And and if you want to, and if you want to, and I agree. And so if you look at Ash that way as just kind of, you know, this tragic character who is sort of using these more comedic elements to kind of, you know, combat his grief. Uh, it's interesting because you actually see a little bit uh, of a precursor to what the overall tone of the films would become in Evil Dead, uh, when Ash is left completely alone at this point and he's in the basement, I feel like that's kind of the first time in the original film where it really starts to take a slightly more comedic kind of over the top approach. Absolutely. I'm you know, so happy you brought this up. Yeah. Cause that, that's when you have the pipes full of blood that are just drenching him. And you know, there's kind of, and the scene in front of the projector and there's kind of like goofy music, you know, and I used to sort of look at that as just kind of Raimi's humor coming through, but I think another way to kind of see it is maybe just, you know, as the film is progressing and as Ash is losing his friends and as his mind is deteriorating, you know, you can almost sort of view it like from his point of view, he's starting to take a more, you know, kind of humor laced approach to the world around him where like he's starting to kind of, you know, uh, develop that coping mechanism of like seeing the world a bit more comedic despite how awful it is, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, just thinking about, again, the ways in which they introduce, and I described that whole section of the movie as like the house turning against him, but really it's his mind turning against him at that point to a certain degree. But, you know, you get that moment with the mirror, right? Where he sticks his hand in the mirror and then it's like water or something. And What I really love about that section of the film is that you, of course, see a lot of DNA of that in the second film, right? When Ash, you know, parts of the house start dancing, the clock is going, the deer head is going, all these things. But, and, you know, specifically in the mirror section, you see Raimi return to that, but he returns to it in a different way, right? In the sequel, it's he looks in the mirror and he's like, I'm fine. And then, of course, his clone comes out and starts choking him and he's like, we just cut up our girlfriend with a chainsaw. Does that seem fine? Like... Little moments like that, I love that he takes ideas that he maybe had at the time. We see what the budget did in terms of like, well, you might have that idea, but like your budget's going to remind you that's not going to happen this time. And seeing him at least follow through or evolve on ideas, again, that 
are the groundwork is laid in the original film, but he expands on them in a way that it doesn't feel like cribbing on old ideas. It feels like exploring those ideas in the way that perhaps he would have liked to in a way. But if anything, like it feels again more in line with the evolution of the tone that we see across the original trilogy and, you know, into the series. Yeah, for sure. And, and I do think that looking at them as, as direct sequels, as opposed to a remake is the best way to go about it. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I, cause I do agree. Like there, there is a bit of a transgression from one to the other and just kind of how they carry over those themes and for your audience, you know, they might be interested in hearing this. Um, cause I actually didn't know this until recently, yeah, but me as well, I, I was aware, for that matter. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, like I was aware that, you know, um, like I had always been kind of curious about well, what's the deal with evil dead too. And I had known that uh, when they sold the rights, you know, they, they didn't basically, they sold the rights to their own movie and they didn't have control over it. So with evil dead too, they kind of had to sort of go back and reestablish things. Not quite sure how this all works out, uh, but they had to go back and reestablish things. But I saw a clip and on Twitter of all places, and I don't know what the clip was from, but it was Bruce Campbell talking about the movies and he basically was just like, you know, you, it's a sequel. And the way to look at it is that moment, the end of evil dead, when Ash has, you know, the, the force come rushing at him, go to evil dead Two and just fast forward to the part where the force picks him up and carries him through the trees, and just begin it there. And then it just feels like a direct sequel. So I'm so happy that I don't have to feel, <laughs> like the uh, the lesser horror fan for not realizing until recently. And yeah, that exact clip was the one that introduced me to that concept, right? Because oh, again, okay. like talking about the idea of the each of these movies, while they are connected, you can still enjoy them without having seen what came previously. And, you know, Evil Dead 2, I, I, I think it's fair to say that's generally probably the starting point, I would think, for most people, that or Army of Darkness, uh, for, right. you know, people of our age and whatnot, discovering these things. But- Overall, like the idea that that can be the case and it's still able to enjoy what is presented, even with the knowledge of seeing the original film, learning how like, oh, this is the way that you should connect the two. Like, again, you dive into Evil Dead 2 and that recreation essentially of the original film, it's perfectly serviceable. And I would say, if anything, it does a fantastic job of catching an audience up. Like, especially, you know, somebody that didn't realize, didn't learn about that, um, which you had just described until maybe two or three months ago or something like that. Um, if anything, like, I, and before we recorded, actually, I went back and I watched the last 30 minutes of The Evil Dead and then immediately had queued up Evil Dead 2 at that point. Um, and oh, nice. seeing how that connects, but then going back and rewatching the original opening of Evil Dead 2, like, it's... It's like the most chef's kiss way to get around like some legal bullshit, essentially. The fact that you own the characters, you own the story, essentially, but you just don't own the rights to the, your own movie to like have that, you know, if anything, also just thinking about this, I think Evil Dead 2 benefits from that because, you know, that movie might be in the same conversation as thinking historically like, a lot of those slashers, specifically like Friday the 13th movies, right? How did the first four of those movies open? It opened with the last 90 seconds of the last movie or something. Um, and, yeah. you know, to the degree that it ends up kind of being a joke, essentially. But with this movie, like it, it sidesteps that stigma, I think, 
in a big way because it's like, yeah, we're going to recreate the original, but we're going to do it in 10 minutes or less. And you're completely caught up and can enjoy this new movie. And it's not exactly what fans had seen previously, which might be confusing, but I think, you know, the further from the release you get, it actually probably has benefited from that. I, I do have to admit, though, I really love the uh, <laughs> the sequel picking up like directly where the previous one left off. In in horror movies, like Halloween Two is one of my favorites for doing that. <laughs> and I'm super pissed that Halloween Ends takes place like a full year or something oh, after shit, Halloween. That's right? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, no, why? Pick up right after. <laughs> you know, one scene or one element of the movie that I need to bring up before we move on is, and, you know, I still found to be incredibly disturbing uh, as an adult was Shelly when she gets possessed, right? What does she do for a majority of the time she's possessed before she tries to kill Max or Ash, rather? Um, I don't know where I pulled that name Max from, but uh, <laughs> she doesn't attack him right out the gate. She doesn't try to possess other people. She just sits up upright like the undertaker and just sits there and giggles and starts singing. And, you know, initially when I had watched the evil dead, I was probably like, why isn't she just trying to eat them or kill them or whatever? But, you know, as an adult, I was able to really appreciate the fact that like you have been shown what the deadites are capable of, but this is, a facet of the deadites personality that I think really does separate them from just being described as, you know, your typical zombies or something like that in the sense Mm. that that is the first instance you realize like, Oh, it's not just like hunting your prey for the sake of, you know, satiating your appetite for souls, but you see the deadites like taking pleasure in playing with their prey or their food essentially, which I find to be so fundamentally disturbing in a way that no, you know, ankle pencil stab ever will be well and and personality is the key word right is that the deadites have a personality and and that was the thing you know that also really set evil dead apart from what came before it is that you know like like when you first think of deadites you you know you automatically go to like oh demons and possession uh but there's a key difference between that and what had come before because generally you know, when we think of demonic possessions, we don't really think of demons like really being this playful, you know, uh, like Reagan and the exorcist is a little bit like there's a smidge of that. Uh, although hers is a much more like aggressive, yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of horror. S- somehow an, un- <laughs> somehow an understatement. Yeah. Let Jesus fuck me. Um, <laughs> But, you know, but but typically we, we thought of the devil and demons as, you know, more of just a, a really like evil force, you know, that didn't have this kind of playfulness. And it, like and in that sense, the deadites kind of became their own creation. You know, they're not they're not quite demons, you know, not not our traditional idea of that. It's its own thing that Raimi created. And I think that, that plays really well into the psychological element of it, because, you know, like you said, you've got we've already seen the pencil thing and the tree thing and all that, that to just have her sit there and laugh, you know, it's just mocking Ash. It's completely mocking him. And it, it puts into this perspective of like, there is nothing he can do, you know, like there is, there's nothing he can do. And the deadites know that. And I think that that's, what's so disturbing about it is they are laughing at him 
because they basically know that he's screwed, <laughs> you know, and, and it's his, and in a lot of ways, it's his own mind that just kind of, that's just kind of telling him like, you know, you're, you're not going to get out of this. <laughs> right. Well, and, and that's just so terrifying. Also, like what I love about that instance is that right after, you know, she has this giggle fit and all these things. Um, furthermore, it shows that like they, the deadites are willing, have the ability to manipulate their prey essentially by, you know, de-shifting back into humans and back and forth, right? To try to get people to do things for them or to try to play, prey upon people's emotional connection to those that they have, you know, possessed. Um, which again, like the idea that they're not just sort of down to business like, a majority of people view demonic entities or, you know, thinking about slasher icons like Michael Myers or Jason, right? They're down to business. They're here to kill. They're not going to go to these elaborate means a majority of the time. They're just going straight for you and they're going to kill you. And I think that highlighting the fact that like the villain in this film or the villains are actually like deriving pleasure from what they're doing and they're willing to stretch things out because of their enjoyment of it. Like that is a, not only defining, but disturbing quality that, you know, I would not be surprised if that influenced countless horror films after that, right? The idea of the killer taking elaborate pleasure in their work. Yeah, no, I mean, we know it did. Like, you could you could make the argument if you wanted that, you know, Evil Dead perhaps did influence killers like Freddy Krueger yeah. or, or, definite, or definitely, you know, at the very least influenced the way that demons were approached. Uh, later in film where you know a lot of films kind of had uh, their demonic entities become more playful after evil dead uh, because there is that that sticks with you that that element of uh, that that disturbing factor in just how you know how unnerving it is to have the thing sit there and laugh at you like that <laughs> you know and, and again it ties in so perfectly with ash as being this character who you know, is perhaps like losing confidence in himself. And here you have this thing just sitting there mocking him and laughing at him. You know, that's, it just, again, it's just part of it tying in the psychological terror of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess transitioning from that into, we're of course not going to have an all series, we've kind of been talking and referencing, you know, multiple entries in the series and whatnot, but I guess, do you, thinking about like evil dead rise and that being on the horizon, you know, even though we haven't seen a trailer yet for it, but it's supposedly supposed to be out by the end of the year. I'm hoping, you know, any day now we're going to get a trailer, but I guess with evil dead rise, what are your thoughts on like, are you hoping that the tone of that movie is in line with maybe the evil dead two or army of darkness school of things? Are you hoping that maybe it is kind of building off of, you know, the 2013 film and that playing it more straight, a little closer to the original, very, you know, gory, practical effects, uh, effects heavy. What are your kind of uh, hopes for that film? You know, I personally, I'd like to see it play a little bit more off of the 2013 film and the original Evil Dead. Uh, the, the reason being that Sam Raimi walks a very thin tightrope uh, with his horror comedy. And that's really not as easy as some people might think. Absolutely not. <laughs> um, and, and, and to be perfectly frank, like, I think that that is a style that is uh, specifically to Raimi. You know, not, not to say that other people can't do horror comedy, but he has his own brand of it. 
And I think that for any other filmmaker to try to copycat that, it's going to feel like a copycat. So, so I'd really like to see it just kind of pick up from, you know, sort of the style of 2013 film where it was, it was fun and it, you know, it still like has an entertainment value, but to me, part of the, it isn't comedy, but part of the entertainment value of that film was just how over the top the violence was. It's comically you know? gory, but carries it it's straight. Comically gory, like when you've got like this girl's arm just hanging on by a tendon and like dropping off. I forget what her dialogue is in that moment, but it kind of makes you like laugh because you're like, Jesus Christ, this is so like gory and wild and insane, you know, that you can't help but kind of laugh at it. Um, I, I would like to see it do that. You know, bring that energy to the new film, make it over the top, make it gory, but don't, don't put yourself in a box of trying to recapture uh, the comedy of Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness because you're just very likely it's not going to work out, especially without Bruce Campbell. I, I mean, they, it's like the saying goes, right? Drama is easy, comedy is hard. And what I think is why Raimi's humor works so well is that first and foremost, he's not making comedies. He's not making horror comedies. And I think that first and foremost, he's always positioning things as being the foundation of horror. And yet, of Obviously, he leans more into the comedy side of things, but I find that the way that he at least presents things overall or carries it, it's a horror movie, which, if anything, is why, you know, Evil Dead 2 and, of course, Army of Darkness, I think the comedy works so well because it's not there's more comedy in them to the degree it's unmissable. But at the same time, it doesn't feel like a comedy. It doesn't have a comedic or comedy movie kind of structure to it. It still very much has a horror movie structure. It just so happens that we're leaning more into the slapsticky Three Stooges side of things. Right. Another way to think about it is that, you know, like we've been talking about, part of the comedy in those movies kind of comes from the idea of the tragedy, right? And I, and I think Raimi understands that is like, you know, in these earlier films, a lot of the comedy comes from that sort of coping mechanism, so to speak. And I think that a problem that, uh, any filmmaker tackling the franchise would run into now is they might just approach it as a comedy, you know, like as a horror comedy and kind of forget the tragedy of it, you know? So, so it would still play differently and it'd be the wrong way to kind of come to the series. Yeah. And I'm definitely not of that camp. That's like, you can't make evil dead without Bruce Campbell. Right. I think that the 2013 and not to say that you were positioning yourself that way, but just overall, like the 2013 film, I think shows it's more about the creative behind the IP, which is again, like why I always have a tendency to champion remakes and those things, right? It's not so much, Oh, they're going to remake shot for shot what was done before, but they're going to impart their own stylistic tendencies or perhaps go in a direction with a film that they love that the original filmmaker never would. And maybe something new is derived from that, which I think, you know, uh, the evil dead 2013 is a perfect example of that because like you had said, it is over the top, gruesome and gory. And I say that it's the type of film that I show to my buddies with as much frequency as I show them Evil Dead 2. You know, one is more slapsticky, but one I find to be, you know, after multiple viewings, somewhat hilarious in how over the top it is. But at the same time, it's still enjoyable. You know what I mean? Like it, it's so violent and so shocking, but it has a sensibility that I never would put it in the same camp as like, French extremity levels of violence, right? Even if, you know, 
shot for shot, some of the things can be, you know, equally gruesome, but they carry them very differently. (laughs) It's a crowd pleaser. You know, it was the most bizarre thing to me to see that film in the theater where my theater was going nuts with Evil Dead. Like, you know, every, everybody was cheering and clapping, like, you know, at some of the gorier moments, like the whole crowd just losing it. And then you get out of it and it, a bunch of people are like, oh, that sucked. It's like, what? <laughs> like, weren't, weren't we all just having a great time with it, you know? And and it's because that mentality seeps into it of like, oh, well, it wasn't like the original or, oh, it didn't have Bruce Campbell. And and no, so that that's why I'm a champion of remakes as well. Like, I, I love seeing new visions and people kind of do their own thing with it. Yeah, my, my comment with Bruce was really just about, like, I don't think you can recreate the slapstick Bruce Ash character, you know? I 100% uh, agree. In the same way. Like, it'd be, it'd be tough to do that. But, um, but yeah, they could still do comedy. I would just I would just much rather see something a little away from that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's essentially like a fool's errand, right, to try to recreate the same level of humor without – you know, while Sam Raimi is one side of that coin and making it work, of course, Bruce Campbell is the other side. And to the degree that if somebody else was there, not Bruce Campbell, I still don't think it would play as well. Like really, Sam Raimi had the perfect, you know, muse in that regard. But with Evil Dead Rise, I guess I'm curious also, like, how do you feel about Lee Cronin being behind that film? I mean, he, you know, has uh, the hole in the ground. More frequently, he did, uh, I believe, a couple episodes of 50 States of Fright, or he did one of those episodes not necessarily a filmmaker that has a filmography that is like steeped in a lot of horror successes. But at the same time, I guess I'm curious, like how do you view his past projects in horror and does that instill confidence or hesitation for you? Well, it doesn't, (laughs) I'm trying to think of a a way to be kind about this. It doesn't instill confidence, uh, you know, because there's certain, there's not a lot there. Right. Uh, and, and the hole in the ground, I don't remember being particularly, you know, blown away by or anything. Uh, it honestly, I haven't, honestly haven't seen it since it came out. Um, so his past work doesn't necessarily, you know, inspire a ton of confidence at the same time though. I kind of like that, uh, because, you know, I feel like a director, I feel like he's a director who has something to prove, you know, like, I feel like. I feel like Evil Dead is perhaps his, you know, it's his biggest project to date. So I like to think that he's probably going into it like, I am going to give this thing everything I've got, (laughs) you know? Uh, So in that regard, I'm really excited to see that because to me, Evil Dead is a franchise that works best with hungry filmmakers. You know, Sam Sam Raimi was hungry when he did Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2. Um, It was Holy Blank and Aja did the remake, right? You cut this out. <laughs> uh, but, you know, Aja was pretty hungry when he did when he did Evil Dead. And so I, I just really want to see that approach to it of a filmmaker that's just coming in that doesn't have a, a defined expectation from an audience that's just going to go in and do what he can. I'm sorry, Fede Alvarez. My mistake. Fede Alvarez, yeah. See, that's why my I was mistake. maybe Aja produced. That's why he's in my head. I have been talking so much French horror and the likes recently that, you know, I, I completely understand. Yeah, total brain fart on my part. Sorry. Sorry, everyone listening. But, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, Fede Alvarez, you know, he came into that hungry. He wanted to, you know, establish himself with that. And so so in that regard, I, I am excited to see what Cronin will do with it because he's a director I have no expectations from. 
that's you know? the, that's the thing. I you know this is one of those cases that I would say amongst some others where I'm like, okay, how did this director that you know has worked has had varying degrees of success, not to you know discredit anybody's abilities and whatnot, but at the same time, how does this director land with one of the most beloved IPs in horror? Um, and you know, I'm one of those people. I think that. Saw obviously saw the hole in the ground, but it was the type of thing where I was like, well, this is incredibly simplistic, but I at least saw enough from Lee Cronin that it's like he took this very basic story and had inklings of his own personality or stylistic tendencies in this movie. It's not, you know, I'm not going to say there's an abundance of those moments and whatnot, but it's the type of thing that with Evil Dead and now the state that the franchise has been in and, you know, moving away from Ash it is very much more malleable um, in terms of like, well, not only are we getting a brand new setting, the tone for the most part is up in the air, right? We're not exactly sure. I'm like you, I want it to be more playing it like 2013 Evil Dead did. Um, Because if you're not going to have, you know, Bruce Campbell, the comedy elements of it, I'm not going to be totally opposed to. But at the same time, you should go into that knowing that's not going to be the strength of the movie. You can have those elements, but that really can't be the focal point, I think. Um, so with a director like that, that maybe is not as well established as we would like for a director coming into the IP, I'm still not completely like hesitant about it just because there are inklings of taking some creative liberties with a base story that might not be the most original. Well, and I would also say too, you know, for for anyone in your audience kind of looking for some confidence in Cronin, I would say that, you know, Raimi produced 50 States of Fright. And so he obviously knows Cronin very well. And he worked with a lot of filmmakers and, and in 50 States of Fright and obviously knows a lot of filmmakers just in general. And so he must see something in Cronin that gives him confidence that he's going to deliver. And I would say just based on the images that we've gotten from Cronin through social media, it certainly looks like he's going to deliver on the gores. <laughs> so I think we can at the very least look forward to that because if anything, Evil Dead Rise looks like it is going to be a blood fest. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope we get something akin to like Demons 2 or something, but it's one of those things That's we will uh, we'll have to wait and see. I, I'll never turn my nose up at uh, Apartment Horror, but uh, yeah. Yes. We need more of it. We I love that. We definitely need more of it because as somebody that's lived in multiple apartments in the last year, there's definitely uh, some horror stories to be told out there before the dead yeah. show up. Givers, Demons 2, to a yeah. lesser extent, Poltergeist 3. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But uh, yeah, you know, unless I uh, skipped over any elements of uh, Evil Dead that really stand out to you, uh, I had a fantastic time chatting with you once again, as always, man. And it was great to uh, compare notes on a movie that, you know, I am coming around to more and more every time I watch it with my love of it. And I was so happy that you uh, could take the time to chat. Yeah, for sure. No, it was a blast, man. And I, I just want to throw out to your audience as well, since I'm assuming most of them are probably Evil Dead fans if they're listening to this. Uh, if you have not yet checked it out, definitely seek out the Hail to the Deadites uh, documentary that came out, I think, earlier this year. But it's it's really just a documentary that's all about the fans of Evil Dead and kind of takes you through like, you know, everyone's collection of stuff they have and why Evil Dead appeals to them. And it's just, it's just a really like nice kind of heartwarming sort of documentary that I think as a fan will just make you appreciate the franchise even more. So, um, but yeah, no, other than that, it's been a blast. I fucking 
Love Evil Dead. It was great talking to you about it, man. Thanks. And uh, before I let you go, why don't you uh, pimp your podcast? Because it's definitely well yeah. worth checking out and uh, where people can follow you on Twitter so they can keep up with, you know, your fantastic reviews and uh, obviously podcast updates. Sure. Thanks, man. Uh, so you can find, uh, we well, can find all my writing uh, on kilohorker.com. That's where I do most of my reviews. I'm also published on different sites like uh, Dread Central, Daily Grindhouse, um, uh, Manor, Valum, I think it's called, which I'll be on soon. Uh, and then, yeah, my podcast, you can get pretty much anywhere you get podcasts. So you can find the links to all the episodes through uh, But we're on iTunes, Spotify, all that stuff. Uh, and that's really just my wife and I kind of getting a little bit buzzed and <laughs> critiquing and arguing over horror films and trying to make some sense out of the meaning of them, if any. <laughs> um, and on Twitter, you can follow me at Killer Critics and get all my bullshit there. <laughs> uh, and yeah, otherwise, that's pretty much it. So <laughs> Awesome. Well, I highly encourage everybody to check out uh, Matt's work and his podcast, which is very, very enjoyable. If you enjoy this, you'll definitely enjoy that. And uh, yeah, thanks again, man. This was a pleasure as always. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jay. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at Not Funny Jay. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week. <laughs>